If you're a producer that's just feeding hay over the winter or just feeding bellage over the winter, uh, protein and TDN are going to be the main two. And I'm not going to get too worried about minerals in that situation because what we'd probably do is just be feeding a loose free choice mineral. If I have those cattle in a dry lot situation where they're confined, then I probably would want to look at mineral analysis in that situation. And that's, again, where I would encourage everybody to visit with the nutritionist before you send that sample in, because we may run an NIR analysis for the crude protein and the TDN. Unfortunately, NIR isn't real good for minerals. So if we're going to look at minerals, we would add a wet chemistry package on there. And so I may do that in a dry lot situation if I was making a custom protein mineral vitamin supplement to go along with the ground hay I was feeding or to go along with the silage I was feeding. If I'm feeding hay out in the pasture, probably not going to worry about that. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Hi, welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm Brad White. I'm one of your hosts today and happy to be joined by Dr. Jason Banta, who has received a couple of his degrees from both Texas A&M, West Texas A&M, and a PhD in animal nutrition from Oklahoma State. He's been teaching and working in the extension field with beef cattle for multiple years, and we're happy to talk to him today about some of the best things that we can do when we're managing feeding, forages, may even get into mineral supplementation and, and how to provide those feeds. Welcome, Dr. Banta. Well, thank you for having me today, Brad. So happy to have you with us and tell tell us a little bit, I gave a little bit of your background, but tell us a little bit about you and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so I work as an extension beef cattle specialist for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. I'm actually stationed in our Northeast portion of the state at our Overton Research and Extension Center. For those of the listeners who are familiar where the Dallas-Fort Worth area is, Overton's about two hours east of Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, So on a day-to-day basis, I work with producers and county agents in regards to all aspects of beef cattle production, really focusing on the cow-calf side of things, whether that be nutrition, whether that be genetics, bull selection, reproductive management, or, or, or whatever. Uh, and work on educational programming in beef cattle production. Excellent. So that gives a great segue into what we're going to talk about today. So you mentioned the cow-calf producers. When we look at some of the operations, a lot of the time is spent managing how do we efficiently and effectively get them the nutrition that they need, and ideally through our forage base. So I'd like to Kind of break into two parts and, and at first let's talk about the grazing and how we manage the grazing side and then two 
stored forages or harvested forages, what we may want to do to get into those. But so let's talk grazing. And I know you've done some work uh, grazing plans, planning out the year, and this varies by region of the country, but give us some insights there on what producers should be thinking about. Yeah, definitely. And I think in in my mind, you hit on one of the key things. When we think about cow-calf nutrition for most producers, the key to a successful nutrition program is going to start with that forage program. That forage is going to be our base, and we really need to build everything off of that. And obviously, that when we think about a grazing plan, that's going to vary depending on where we're at. Are we in East Texas? Are we in West Texas? Are we in Kansas? Are we in Nebraska? Um, And so we have to keep that in mind. But when we think about a forage plan, it's typically going to start with a perennial forage, whether that be an introduced forage like Bermuda grass or Bahia grass, or maybe that's a native range scenario where we're dealing with little blue stem, big blue stem, Indian grass, those forages. But we're dealing with that warm season perennial forage typically first. Uh, As we get into the northern part of the United States, that may switch to a cool season perennial forage, but we're dealing with that perennial forage. And typically we're looking at the growth period of that forage, maybe six to eight months, or at least the grazing period of that forage for six to eight months. And then we're thinking about if quality isn't good enough, how do we supplement those cattle appropriately? And then the other aspect of that equation is if that base forage is only going to get us six to eight months of the year, how do we fill in the rest of the gaps uh, throughout the year? And so we can do that with stockpiled forage in some situations. In other situations, we may be planning a cool season annual or summer annual to uh, complement our perennial forage program base. And then also we would have hay or silage to help fill those gaps. And so I always encourage producers to sit down and think about this is where we start, but how do we get through the majority of the year with as much of that grazing program or that good forage base as possible? And as we think of that, they need to think about quality, but then a big thing producers need to think about is stocking rates. And that's one of the biggest challenges I run into with a lot of producers is they're trying to run probably a few more cows than what that property is, is really capable of running. And so that makes it much more challenging for them to have a successful uh, forage program there. So I always encourage producers to keep that in mind. And maybe even if they think the property can run 100 cows, maybe let's be a little conservative and just stock it at 80 or 85 cows so that we have a little buffer when we get into dry conditions. Obviously, there's a large portion of the U.S. right now that still experience some drought and, and really drought levels have increased for some areas significantly in the last 45 days here. Uh, so really kind of that, that big picture there when they're thinking about that forage plant. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With beef and dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. I'm smiling because it is, that is typical of so many of us, and I'll lump myself into that category of, if I think it can support this many, one or two more, probably okay. Three or four more, probably okay, right? It's that slippery slope that we fall down and all of a sudden, and, and some years, 
this is the tricky part. And you, you mentioned this. Some years you get by with that because you have adequate rainfall. The rains come at the right time. We have overabundance of forage. And other years, you don't. Right. And then you and then you kind of fall off a cliff at that point if we're right on the edge of where we need to be stocked. So I, I was interested to follow up a little bit on your comments relative to. So ideally, we go through as many grazing days as possible and have to feed as little stored forage. But in large parts of the country and many operations, we're going to have to deal with stored forage. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that because you made some comments on quality what are some of the best ways for me to assess quality on some of my stored forage or hay? So when we're talking about stored forage or hay, uh, so we would be thinking about silage, baleage, or hay would kind of be the big three in that category. Testing that is going to be number one because that quality is really not going to be changing in those. So we can test and we can design a supplementation program around that. Now, when it comes to testing, unfortunately, all labs are not created equal. So it's important that we get that we get a good quality sample. And so, for example, if we're testing hay, my general recommendation is to use a hay probe and sample about 10 percent of those bales. And we'll make a composite of that. And we want to sample each cutting or each load of that hay. So if you're buying hay, sample each load that comes in. If you produce that hay, sample each cutting that was managed uh, differently. So you may have some fields, while you all cut it in the same week, if these fields were managed differently than fields over in another location, we want to sample that separately. Um, from a silage pit, we're going to go in there and sample from multiple spots in that pit. Um, and same thing with baleage, we would sample it just like hay. But we need to make sure we get it sent to the right lab. And I want to send those samples to a lab. So a lot of people focus on protein. But really, when we're thinking about supplementing cows, especially when we're dealing with introduced forages, TDN tends to be a bigger struggle for us, especially those producers in the southern United States. So we need a good estimate of TDN. I like sending those samples to a lab that's going to use what we call a summative equation to estimate TDN. And so with that, we'll break that plant or that's we're going to look at that forage and we're going to break it into different components and estimate the digestibility and then figure our TDN off of that. But one of those biggest components is what we call NDF or neutral detergent fiber. That's the largest chemical fraction of that plant. And the digestibility can vary tremendously. So if we just look, I'll, I'll use Bermuda grass because that's common in my area of the world, is digestibility of that NDF fraction can range from about 35 to about 65%, which will have a huge impact on TDN. So we need to get a good estimate of that NDF digestibility. Using Dairy One Forge Lab as an example in New York, that's one that a lot of nutritionists will use. What we can do when we send samples there, if it's a forage that's not very common, they will actually take that forage, collect rumen fruit fluid from a cow, put that in a jar, put the forage sample in a little bag and drop it in that rumen fluid for 30 or 48 hours, depending on what you want, and measure the digestibility of that NDF fraction and we can use that in our TDN calculation. 
Now, fortunately, because of doing that thousands of times and scanning that on a lot of samples, we can use an NIR technique to replace that wet chemistry analysis. So we get a result back in a much quicker uh, time frame and also at a lower cost. Um, what I always recommend for producers is before you send a sample off, if you're unsure, visit with who's ever going to help with making supplementation recommendations. So hopefully that's going to be a nutritionist somewhere. Visit with them on what lab they would recommend to send that sample to and also what tests we would want to use for that sample. So there may be certain situations where we add a different test in or we change the test slightly depending on what the forage base is, but we really need to get a good analysis of that forage and looking at the TDN as well as the protein. The other thing I'll mention quickly on protein is like if you get a result back from Dairy One or Cumberland Valley is another well-known lab in Pennsylvania that a lot of uh, nutritionists will use, is it will show crude protein and adjusted crude protein. And the question comes up a lot of times, well, what is that adjusted crude protein? Well, if we put hay up a little too wet, we get a little heat production there. It will actually go through what we call a Maillard reaction that will tie up some of the protein and some of the carbohydrates, making them undigestible to the animal. When we test for ADICP is what they'll test for, depending on what that level is, they may adjust that crude protein value down. So if you have a sample that came back that was 12% crude protein and 12% adjusted crude protein, they're the same. That tells me there's no heat damage there. If we have one that comes back at 12% crude protein, but then on the adjusted crude protein, it shows 10 and a half, that tells me we have some heat damage there. So always encourage producers to look at that adjusted crude protein value. And then the other big value to look at is going to be the TDN. So a couple, couple questions there and, and great explanation. Uh, I'll follow up on the protein. So the, on the protein side, you said the adjusted and then the raw value. Which, which of those, and, and I may need to look at both to see if there's heat damage, but if I'm going to formulate the ration, am I using the adjusted one? Am I using the raw value? Which of those do I use? Yeah, so if the producers really only need to look at one, the key one to look at is the adjusted crude protein. That's what we're going to use when we formulate our supplementation program or if we're looking to see if we even need to supplement those cattle. We always look at that adjusted crude protein. Uh, people just like to also look at the crude protein value to see if there was any heat damage there. But the, the key one to focus on is the adjusted crude protein value. And then the TDN that you mentioned, because you talked about protein and then there's TDN, which is that an assessment of energy? Because you talked about the acid detergent fiber or the neutral detergent fiber, but, but is that TDN an assessment of the energy of that diet? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up. I should have mentioned that before is there's a lot of different ways we can measure energy. And uh, the one that we start with is going to be TDN or total digestible nutrients. And so you'll see that and then it may be converted to a net energy for gain a net energy for maintenance a net energy for lactation value. But everything starts with that TDN for cow calf producers. A lot of times that's where we'll stop is we'll just use the TDN value and we'll work off of that. Now, if we're in a feedlot and we're looking at a feedlot ration, we may be looking at NEG in that situation. Those are just different terms to describe the energy content of that forage or that feed. Yeah. And so 
following that down, and you said in, in most cases, it, and depends on the quality of the hay, you, you want that protein to be above a certain level, and then your energy may be the limiting factors, the way I understood your remarks. Is that accurate? Depending on the forage. So if we talk about introduced warm season forages, typically energy or TDN is going to be the limiting factor. If we talk about some of our native perennial forages, a lot of times their protein may be the first limiting factor. So it will vary a little bit depending on what uh, species we're talking about. But just kind of as an example, if we look at a moderate to heavy milking beef cow at peak milk production, and so peak milk production would be about 60 days after calving. For a beef cow, that's going to be my highest nutrient requirements. Uh, for those cows, typically we're looking at needing 11.5 to 12.5% protein in that forage if we were letting them have free choice access to it, and then 60 to 61% TDN to meet their requirements. Now, in that situation, those cattle wouldn't be gaining, they wouldn't be losing. That would just be kind of what they would need to maintain them steady in that situation. So, so the big two, the protein and the energy content of the ration, is there, is there anything else I want to be sure is on that report or that you really want to be able to look at as you formulate the ration for those cows? So it's going to vary a little bit depending on the situation. If you're a producer that's just feeding hay over the winter or just feeding baleage over the winter, uh, protein and TDN are going to be the main two. And I'm not going to get too worried about minerals in that situation because what we'd probably do is just be feeding a loose free choice mineral. If I have those cattle in a dry lot situation where they're confined, then I probably would want to look at mineral analysis in that situation. And that's, again, where I would encourage everybody to visit with the nutritionist before you send that sample in, because we may run an NIR analysis for the crude protein and the TDN. Unfortunately, NIR isn't real good for minerals. So if we we're going to look at minerals, we would add a wet chemistry package on there. And so I may do that in a dry lot situation if I was making a custom protein mineral vitamin supplement to go along with the ground hay I was feeding or to go along with the size I was feeding. If I'm feeding hay out in the pasture, probably not going to worry about that. The other place where I may add something additional is if I was worried about some kind of problem. So again, in our area, or really we look at the Southeast United States, poultry litter can be a common fertilizer that gets used. And a little bit of poultry litter is a good fertilizer, but if we get too much poultry litter out there, it can really cause some mineral issues in regards to the calcium phosphorus ratio getting out of whack, which can cause some health problems in cattle. We can occasionally get into some problems where we get too much copper and too much zinc, which can get into some trace mineral toxicities. So if a producer's having health issues in the herd and they're working with their veterinarian looking at some of those health issues, I may add a mineral analysis in to that traditional hay sample there in that situation as well. The other things we may consider uh, going back to some of the drought comments we made, if we're dealing with forages that have a risk of developing nitrates, uh, we may want to add a nitrate analysis on some of those samples just to make sure we don't get into a problem there. And then something that historically we haven't done, but based off some experience I've had over the last couple of years and visiting with some 
colleagues there in Kansas that they've identified a, a potential problem or two is historically we never really worried about um, what most people would call prussic acid. I'm going to refer to it as hydrogen cyanide toxicity in hay. We have learned through some better testing techniques that sometimes we can get some higher levels of hydrogen cyanide toxicity in hay. So if we were dealing with some really immature forages that weren't growing well, that we were trying to salvage in a drought situation, I may test them uh, for hydrogen cyanide potential as well. So it really, as far as what we're going to test for, kind of depends on the situation. We're always going to look at crude protein and TDN. Sometimes we'll add minerals or sometimes we'll add some other things to test for as well. Well, and your point, your point is really good that the, depends a lot on the type of forage and even the same type of forage, drought stress, non-drought stress can be very, can be very different between those two scenarios. You might want to test. You, you have some examples. So you mentioned both nitrate and prussic acid type poisoning. You have some examples of forages that you'd be more concerned about that in a drought stress situation. Yeah. And um, when we think about nitrate specifically, typically our sorghums are going to be at greater risk of that. Or um, if you had the other place where we kind of think about it from time to time, we're getting into problems is pigweed can really accumulate some nitrates. If, if people turn cattle into a dry lot or set of working pens where they haven't had cattle in a while, that could potentially be a problem. With nitrates, it's important to realize that they're typically concentrated in the lower portion of the stem. So the other thing we can do from a hay production standpoint is we could raise the cutting height and end up leaving some of those nitrates uh, out in the field to help reduce our risk there. Um, but sorghums would be the, the main one. When we think about uh, hydrogen cyanide potential or, or prussic acid potential, Again, plants in the sorghum family uh, would be our, our major concern. Uh, as a general rule, um, risk is going to be higher in young seedlings or in newer growth. And as those plants mature, that risk goes down. And so that's one of the reasons we typically don't have a problem with hydrogen cyanide toxicity in the hay is because we're dealing with a more mature plant. But over the last few years, we have run into a handful of cases where we did have a little bit of a problem there. Um, the other thing on the nitrates is cattle can adapt to those. So knowing what those levels are is we may decide to feed a little bit of this hay and a little bit of that hay to kind of cut those levels down or dilute them a little bit or start with the hay that has the lower values and build up to the hay that has the higher values. Um, there's other plants that can definitely both have nitrates or hydrogen cyanide uh, potential, but sorghums are the ones we tend to think about the most. Yeah, and especially especially when those plants are stressed. I mean, it doesn't have to be. I use the example of drought, but drought or frost in some parts of the country, depending on when you harvest them, when you when you if you're grazing them, uh, can certainly be part of the issue. So you mentioned minerals, and that you may or may not include the mineral profile. I guess my twofold question, one, how much do those mineral profiles vary by region of the country? Because we have lots of different soil types and areas. And then within region of the country, like if I've tested, I take hay from this pasture and I take hay from this pasture this year, next year, the year after, 
do I need to continue to test the mineral profile? So two questions about variability, one across the country and one year to year in the same pasture. So there's some general patterns that we see from a regional standpoint, from a mineral standpoint. So there, there may be certain regions of the country where we need to focus in on this mineral and maybe we don't worry about it quite as much in another region of the country. But with that said, depending on the previous management history and fertilization application, and especially if animal manure or poultry litter was used, we can see a tremendous amount of variation in mineral content of our soils and then our forages from property to property just based on previous management. So we always got to kind of keep that in mind. Now, as far as do we need to routinely test uh, year after year, I would say in most situations, I'm probably not going to spend the money to do that. I always want a crude protein and a TDN. But in most situations, I'm not going to test mineral year after year unless I'm worried about a problem there. And if I'm worried about a problem there, then I would be testing on a more frequent basis. Okay. So now I'm going to shift gears just a bit here in that I have been thinking about cows. So we're talking, we're saving forage and, and I'm thinking about cows and, and you mentioned potentially confined feeding. I might be doing something different. Is there anything different I want to think about if I'm focused on replacement heifers? So maybe I've got some cows, but I'm saving some replacements. Uh, I may not be feeding them in a dry lot, but I'm probably going to be feeding them separate from the cows, hopefully. Uh, any, anything specific that I should be thinking about in my forage management plan there? Uh, the biggest thing from a forage management plan on those replacement heifers is typically we want to give them the best forage available. Uh, so because we're trying to grow and we're trying to develop those heifers, um, it's important when we're thinking about giving them the best forage available or whether we need to supplement them or not, is we need to think about what kind of gains we need on those heifers. And so if we just kind of think about what's typical, and I'm going to say we're going to target those heifers to breed at 65% of their mature body weight. Um, and so if those heifers weaned off at roughly 40 or 45% of their body weight, then between weaning and breeding, we would need to look at those heifers gaining about a pound and a quarter to a pound and a half a day to get them to our target. Now, the other thing we need to do and which forget gets forgotten a lot of times with replacement heifers is we can't forget about them after we get them bred because we need to keep them growing to calving to make sure they calve out well and also that they're in appropriate body condition to get those heifers bred back after cattle. Um, and just quickly from that standpoint is underfeeding heifers does not reduce calving problems and in most situations actually increases calving problems. So we, we never wanna underfeed those heifers. Um, a couple quick things there, and this will kind of tie back into the cow herd as well. But when we think about developing bred heifers, if we do have access to a cool season annual forage, whether that be ryegrass, whether that be wheat or oats, one of those cool season annual forages, during that last trimester of gestation, we wanna limit grace those heifers, those bred heifers, and even really probably the, the, the cows as well, but especially those bred heifers in that last trimester, because that forage can be so high in quality, we can increase birth weights in some situations there. Uh, but if we're just feeding those heifers hay and supplementing them cubes and those kind of things, our pocketbook is gonna stop us long before 
we would ever get into any kind of excess nutrition there. Now, when we're thinking about developing those heifers, it's kind of good to know what forages have more potential for animal performance. So if we kind of look at gains for replacement heifers or some stocker steers, or maybe some calves that we weaned and we're preconditioning a little bit before we sell them, how, what kind of performance would we expect on different forage species? So if we kind of look at some of our native um, perennial forages or warm season perennial forages, so our little blue stem or big blue stem, if we get into the, some of the short grass, some of the gramas or those, because of the way we graze those, and we can't graze those forages as intensively or as hard as we would in introduced forages, because of the way we graze those, typically we'll be thinking a pound to maybe two, two and a quarter pounds a day of weight gain on those good quality native forages under appropriate grazing. So we're not overgrazing uh, in those situations, we could get those kind of gains. When we look at our warm season perennial forages from an introduced standpoint, if we think about things like old world blue stems, so WWB doll, plains blue stems, spur, um, and then kind of the lower end of that would be King Ranch or Clayburg blue stem, a pound to pound six a day, Tifton 85, which is actually a Bermuda grass, star grass cross, again, that pound to pound six a day on those replacement heifers or those stockers. Uh, Johnson grass would actually fit in that same uh, performance window. If we look at forages like Bermuda grass, Bahia grass, Dallas grass, Klein grass, we're probably looking at about 0.7 to maybe 1.1 pounds a day uh, performance there. Now, when we get into our annual forages, so we mentioned the sorghums a little earlier from a nitrate standpoint, those can be some very high quality forages. So our Sudan grass or sorghum Sudan hybrid, two to two and a, two to 2.75 pounds a day weight gain. Uh, crabgrass or pearl millet, a pound and a quarter to two pounds a day. So you can see with the majority of these forages, especially the warm season annuals I just mentioned, if we have our stocking rate set right, we can probably get those heifers developed on grass by itself. And then the one that we can really do a great job of developing those replacement heifers on, if it fits into our system, depending on when those heifers are born and when we need to breed them, is our cool season annuals. So the ryegrass, the oats, the wheat, the triticale, we can look at two to almost three pounds a day weight gain in that situation on those heifers. So knowing the forage species and what our potential is will help us know where do we want to target putting those heifers or where do we want to target putting our lactating cows versus our non-lactating cows. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned those heifers gaining at uh, somewhere between a pound and a quarter, a pound and a half as they go through, meaning that if my cows are out there and my cows, we talked about, I want them to kind of stay steady state most times. They may put on a few pounds, but they're they're kind of where they are. Uh, we're, we're probably going to have to feed a different type of forage or have some sort of supplementation plan, right? Which is the whole reason we'd want to separate those replacement efforts from the cows. Is that my accurately hearing what you're saying? Well, yeah, definitely. The, the, the heifers will have a little bit of higher requirement. They're not a, not a tremendous amount, but a little higher requirement. So we want to separate them. And maybe what we do in some situations is we let the heifers have the first pass through the pasture from a grazing standpoint. 
Because when we think about forages, that newer growth at the top, when we're talking about perennial forages, is always going to be our highest quality. So if we kind of think, again, using Bermuda grass as an example, if we think about that plant being 18 to 24 inches tall, kind of what people would think about when they were getting ready to cut for hay, the top third is going to be the highest quality, the middle third is going to be lower in quality, and the bottom third is going to be the lowest quality. So what we could potentially do with those heifers is let them go through and just graze that top couple inches off and then come back with our cows that may have a little lower requirements. And so we're using the same forage resource, but we're using it in a manner that we maximize the benefit to either our replacement heifers or a cow herd in that situation. Now the slight adjustment there when we're talking about an annual forage is those annual forages, and let's go back to our cool seasons, is when they're growing and they're vegetative, all that is real high quality. But when those annual cool season forages get ready to go reproductive and start putting seed head on, as we start getting that seed head on, our quality is going to go down in that situation. So producers want to keep that in mind. Is from a quality standpoint, there are some differences in the portion of the plant and then the time of year between our annuals and our perennials. Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of variability there as we think about it. And going back to what you said at the start, we've got to, we've got to have a plan as we're going into both the grazing season and planning for the winter and adjust accordingly with the quality of the forage to match the cows and type of animal that I'm feeding. One of the other parts that you mentioned, and we talked about, and I asked you a follow-up question on minerals, uh, relative to minerals in the hay and in the environment, but I'd like to follow that a little bit further and ask you about, uh, a lot of times we hear about, boy, I need to change my mineral nutrition program. So now I'm talking about providing them supplemental minerals of some sort. Give me some guidelines to think about when I'm thinking about mineral nutrition in general. Is this something that needs to be customized ranch to ranch? Is it something that I just need a good solid mineral program and I'm okay? Or do I need to do some further investigation? Yeah. I, I'm definitely in, in the majority of the situations out there in the camp of just a good mineral program. There's way too much variability in mineral content and especially even intake from cow to cow that in most situations, it's not going to make sense to customize a mineral for this operation versus this operation. Um, when we're looking at most forages, um, we're gonna be looking at wanting a high calcium, low phosphorus mineral, all right? So I'm looking at a mineral and let me back up one step. For most people, a good loose mineral supplement will provide us the most complete and well-balanced options. If a loose mineral supplement won't work in your situation, there are some mineral tubs out there. We see a huge amount of variation in there, those, and so you have to be really mindful of that if you're going the tub route. But if we look at a loose mineral, most loose minerals are going to be formulated for roughly a four ounce intake. And so if we're looking at a four ounce intake, I'm typically, um, and, and I'll use Texas as an example since that's where I'm from, whether I'm on introduced forages or I'm on native forages, if we're talking about an actively growing forage, I want a high calcium, low phosphorus mineral. Um, and then from there, just some of the trace minerals that tend to get focused on a little bit more, let's just say copper and zinc. I'm gonna pay a little more attention to the ratio of the copper and zinc 
than I will the absolute amounts. So in a good four ounce mineral, 1500 parts per million, copper's plenty in my mind in most situations. So if I have 1500 parts per million copper, I'm gonna want at least three to four times as much zinc as I do copper. So I'm looking at 45 to 6,000 parts per million zinc in that situation. Um, and then when I think of what I would refer to as a complete mineral supplement, it's gonna have my macro minerals, it's going to have my micro or what we call our trace minerals. It's going to have some vitamins, typically A, D, and E. Uh, vitamin A would be something we would really be mindful of in any kind of a drought situation uh, because we're losing those green growing forages. So that vitamin A is extremely important there. And then the other thing that mineral needs to have is salt. That salt does two things. Initially, the salt encourages the cattle to eat the mineral, but then at a point, the salt will actually help limit intake of that mineral. So I want a, a well-balanced mineral, just kind of roughly 15 to 18% calcium. Uh, that phosphorus level, anywhere from about three to 6% is plenty. Typically we see a little bit more than that. Extra phosphorus doesn't help us. Um, there's kind of a misconception in the industry that if you feed phosphorus, it'll help reproduction. Uh, but once we meet the phosphorus requirement of that animal, additional phosphorus is not gonna have any impact on reproduction and all that additional phosphorus is going to do is increase the cost of the mineral and reduce the palatability of the mineral so high calcium low phosphorus is what i'm shooting for the majority of the time when may i adjust that if we're grazing lactating cows on cool season annual forages or sometimes some other forages early in the spring if i'm worried about grass tetany i want to check the magnesium level in that mineral uh, for me, 5% magnesium is plenty. Um, the key with magnesium is to make sure we get those cattle to eat it on a daily basis uh, because they can't really, they can store it, but cows don't mobilize it very well from their skeletal system uh, when they need it. So that daily supply is important. So oftentimes a little more moderate level of magnesium works better than that high, super high level of magnesium. Um, there on the cow herd. Uh, so I, I would pay attention to that. The other thing is going back to our stockers or replacement heifers. If they're grazing a cool season annual, I'm not so much worried about magnesium for them. What I'm worried about for them is calcium and getting some extra calcium in those stockers or those replacement heifers can really provide a great return on investment. There's some really nice work out of Oklahoma State that would show on average, if we could get an extra roughly 10 grams of calcium in those cattle a day, we could get an extra quarter pound of weight gain on average because calcium becomes our first limiting nutrient. So long story short, a good high calcium, low phosphorus mineral most of the time. Question becomes, well, what about when we get into those dormant native range forages, do we need to go to a higher phosphorus mineral? I'm gonna say in most situations, we don't. Because in most of those situations, we're providing some kind of protein or energy supplement that's gonna more than supply enough phosphorus to help make up any kind of potential difference there. So I would continue with that same high calcium, low phosphorus mineral the majority of the time. If I'm on dormant native range and we're not providing a protein energy supplement, I may consider a little higher phosphorus mineral in that situation but it would be very important to monitor intake and make sure those cattle were eating that mineral. 
if they're not eating it well, you're better off going back to the high calcium, low phosphorus mineral. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the really good discussion there, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, loose mineral is, is mostly what you're talking about. And then some of the tubs, there's some variability between tubs and you emphasize the important part of, I've got to get them to eat it every day, right? This is not a once in a while thing. So what are some tips or tricks for either monitoring that or ensuring that we get that daily consumption that we need? Yeah, and it, and it may not be absolutely every day, but every other day, I want frequent consumption on that mineral. The easiest way to monitor that as far as how much those cows are eating, let the mineral feeder go empty or close to empty. Put a 50-pound sack in there, see how many or two 50-pound sacks, whatever you put in there, and then see how many days it takes for those cows to eat it. Divide by the number of cows and then divide by the number of days, and that'll give you an in, a rough intake on average those cows are eating. Now, when we say a target of four, there sometimes those cows may average three ounces. There sometimes they may average five ounces. I'm not going to get too worked up over that, but I want to make sure they're getting somewhere in the neighborhood of my target. If they're not eating mineral, what we want to look at is, are they getting salt somewhere else? So if they're getting salt somewhere else, they're probably not going to eat a loose mineral. Um, some things we can do to help encourage mineral intake is move those mineral feeders closer to a water source or closer to those loafing areas. If the cattle are consuming too much mineral, we can move that mineral feeder away from that water source or away from that loafing area. Um, oftentimes we struggle more with not getting mineral consumption than getting too much mineral consumption and typically it's because we got they're getting salt from somewhere else yeah absolutely and it's been great visiting with you dr branch of really good information on minerals forage testing animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed the monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin dash survey. It's time for our famous three. Looking at evaluating the upcoming year, but I've got three more questions for you. And these are questions to have us learn a little bit about you. So We'll go a different direction here. And what is what is your favorite beef-related book or resource? So I think I'll go with the resource here, um, maybe to, to help producers out, um, is for our Extension Animal Science Group at Texas a we have a website that's beef.tamu.edu, and it has a lot of different publications on there. And whether it's the AM website or other extension websites across the country, I really encourage producers to visit those. I really like the extension information a lot of times because we take more of an applied approach to it versus when we look at some of the research that we do from a scientific standpoint. Now, that research is important, but we have to figure out how to apply it. Uh, so any of those extension websites out there that have that good applied information is, is what I really enjoy looking at. Excellent. What about your favorite book or resource that's outside of ag? So outside of ag, I honestly don't do any reading outside of ag. All my time reading and that kind of stuff is going to be ag related. 
I would say one of the things I like doing outside of ag is I, I definitely like fishing. Uh, that's kind of my, my getaway, whether that's freshwater or saltwater fishing. I, I enjoy doing that. Excellent. Uh, and in your opinion, what sets a successful beef professional apart? Okay, so if we think about a successful cow-calf producer out there, let's we'll phrase it in those terms. What makes them successful? Having a plan, being willing to change and experiment a little bit in their operation, and really making sure they're using that pencil to make an economic decision and not making a decision just based off of something they somebody else told them or a perception. Uh, and going back, I think the perfect example of that is we started off today's discussion talking about those stocking rates and not being overstocked. I see for a lot of producers, they can actually have more enjoyment raising cattle and make more money in the industry if they'll back off those stocking rates and run a few less cows rather than more cows because they'll see a lot of times better pregnancy rates, they'll see better weaning rates, and they're going to see lower input costs. So really being, whether you're a producer or whether you're an industry professional trying to help those producers, looking at that big picture and really being critical of all those decisions. Excellent. Well, we've really enjoyed visiting with you today. And if you shared some great information across the board on nutrition and hopefully folks will follow up with you. And thanks again for joining us, Dr. Panther. Uh, thank you for having me. I had a great time this afternoon.